0: All right, we are in the the, uh, Gospel of Luke, one of the great historians uh, ever in this world. Um, And we are going to be focusing on two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And as I do Luke, and I'm going to do Luke uh, for a few weeks, then I'm going to do Ephesians, I'm going to do some apologetics, so I'm going to kind of mix it up for you. But uh, we're focusing first on Luke chapter 3. And in that, Luke begins by skipping about twenty years. We left off when Jesus was in the temple, as a as a twelve-year-old boy. Now it's about twenty years or so later, um, and now he he's beginning to talk about uh, the uh, uh, prophecies of the Messiah. And, and one of the things I wanted you to focus on was that uh, turn, if you would, to Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. Uh, verses uh, verse eight to sixteen and this is a prophecy relating to Jesus and it's something you ought to uh, make a note in your Bible because it's it's pretty profound. Second Samuel chapter seven verse eight. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I also will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, understand that this is clearly a prophecy relating to Jesus Christ, uh, because when you say that your throne will be established forever, well, no, no throne of any man would be established forever. Uh, and when he speaks about uh, he, his name, his kingdom, it's clearly Jesus. This is a prophecy relating to Jesus Christ. And so you see it, that David is being told that from his lineage will come the Messiah. From his lineage will come the Messiah. And we know that Mary came from the, from the lineage of David. Actually, so did Joseph even though Joseph is not uh, the the biological father of Jesus. But you see this. And so this is an emphasis early on about who Christ would be. And you see, it's not a political emphasis. And one of the things that the Jewish people really got wrong is they believed all along that the Messiah would be a political Messiah. They believed that the boot of Rome would be taken off them uh, by their Messiah. Uh, And instead, God uh, didn't care at all about Rome and about the political realities. God was not concerned about that. Look, the Jewish people continued to prosper and survive even through some of the worst Roman emperors that there could be. Because God had a greater call on their life. And I want to say that that applies to us today. So when we get so wrapped up in politics, and I'm like you, uh, I, I read this stuff and it disturbs me. I want you to know something. You are the people of God. God will take care of you, irrespective of who's in Washington, all right? We've been through some pretty bad administrations, haven't we? Okay? All you have to do is go back over the last 20 years, look at some of the people who have been president, look at the Congress and all that, yet God has blessed you. He has protected you. You have survived. It's the same as what God did with Israel. There was Israel, even there, prospering even over these, these miserable Roman emperors, and so God is concerned about your spiritual life. Your spiritual life. He's concerned about your soul. And he, that's what his, his will is about your life. And so we need to focus on that. He's not He doesn't care about political prominence. all right? He doesn't care about that. In fact, there's many verses we know Paul has written about that, that in some ways that we have to submit to the authorities. And so if we submit to the authorities, we bow and pray and ask God to intervene. But at the end of the day, I'm looking at the cross. I'm focusing on the cross. I'm walking with Jesus. My belief is that Jesus will protect me and care for me every step of the way. I, I absolutely have total faith in that, that as I've given my heart to God, I've walked with, with Jesus, He will not allow me to have harm. That doesn't mean I'm gonna walk through life a cakewalk, but it means that even as I experience difficult times, even as I'm going to experience persecution or suffering, I'm going to recognize that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You understand? All things, not just good things, not just pleasant things. I'm reminded when I say this, I'm reminded of of Joseph's statement to his brothers 17 years after they sold him into slavery, right? Right? 17 years afterwards, and Joseph looks at his brothers in that reunion, and he says to them, he looks them in the eye, and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Oh, my Lord, Jesus. Is there a more profound statement of that than the will of God? Even when there's evil pointed at you, and you go through evil, God turns that evil. He turns it to good. And so I want you to understand that. Uh, and 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 we see this here in every aspect as as we study scripture, um, and so now in Luke chapter three uh, we begin to get a sketch of John the Baptist's ministry uh, in in about twenty verses, uh, and we know that John the Baptist was prophesied about in Isaiah, uh, and if you want to see that, turn to Isaiah chapter forty, because I wanted you again to get a sense of how the Bible comes together. These things don't just come out of of the blue uh, in the Bible. There's prophecy, and then there's fulfillment of prophecy. So turn to Isaiah chapter 40. 40, yes, Isaiah chapter 40. We don't hear this too much in church, but it's important. And so look, look, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, beginning verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her, that her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed And all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there you go. There it is. There will be one in the wilderness calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He will not himself be the Messiah. He will not be the Savior of mankind, but he will point the way to that Savior. And then look as you're in that same chapter. Look at verse 15, if you would. Surely the nations are, lot, are, are not. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale. He weighs the islands as though they were the dust. All right. And so you you see this. Look also at verse ten. See the Lord, the sovereign Lord, comes with power, and His arm rules for Him. See His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in in the balance, who has understood the mind of the Lord. That's your Jesus. That's your Jesus right there. That's who Jesus says he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Can you imagine that? Measuring effectively the oceans as he created them in the hollows of hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heaven, the universe, all coming from our Lord Jesus, who has held the dust of the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance who has understood the mind of the Lord, you know. That's, that's the, the point for all of us because inevitably somebody will say, why does this happen, right? Why does this event happen? How could this happen? How could this evil take place? Well, let me ask you something. You have a brain that's about this big as compared to God. No, make, no. like a pinpoint, all right? An inconsequential pinpoint. And you are trying to take that inconsequential pinpoint and try to understand the mind of God, get on your knees and ask God to forgive you for that arrogance. Really. That's arrogant. All right? Here's the bottom line. We don't know why God does everything he does, but I trust him. I trust him. He loves me. He cares for me. I don't understand it. I can only see 50 feet down on the road, and yet he sees for eternity. And so it's important for us to understand this. And so here you see God announcing his special delight for his son uh, and that the spirit is portraying the reality of who Jesus will be. This is who John the Baptist will be speaking about. Uh, and, and, and also, if you look here, uh, I made a note of looking at this uh, and that's not the, the right verse, but, but, un- but here you understand this that, that, that God is speaking in a powerful way. Look, as you're in Luke chapter 3, take a look, if you would, at verse uh, 21. Because you're beginning to see now how, how Jesus acts in this role, that he is as the Savior. And so in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Why would Jesus be baptized? This was a baptism of repentance uh, and and a, a baptism designed for Jewish people to forgive them of their sins. That's what the act of baptism. So why would Jesus, who effectively had no sin, why would he do that? Well, effectively, Jesus was demonstrating that he would be faithful to the law in all things. He would perfect his walk in the law. He would fulfill the law. And if the law indicated that it was appropriate to be baptized, then he would would submit to that as well. What you see in Jesus is a life of perfect submission, a life of submission. And honestly, that would be a guide word for you to incorporate in your walk. Submission. Submission. We don't like to submit. None of us like to submit. Uh, A lot of times... You know, people will say things about us and, and we want to immediately rise up in indignation and, and demolish those arguments. Uh, and I've had to learn in my life, in my spiritual walk, that that's not the way to do it. That, although in my professional life, that's how I lived, uh, but, but in my spiritual life, that's not the way to do it. And so I ask God to, to guide me and give me discernment and help me, help me to have a submissive life, to be a servant, to look for places to lift people up. To do that. But in, in this same uh, area of verses, as you study this, uh, it says, When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And, he, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, here's the point of that verse. How many times have you heard people say this? There's no such word as the Trinity in the Bible. Right? There's no such word as Trinity. What is it with you people? How do you concoct this when there is no such word? Well, there is no such word as Trinity, but look at this verse as God speaks to our heart. You see there the tripart God, right? All right? Because you have Jesus being baptized, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, right? And then you have God the Father speaking from heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Trinity. That's the Trinity. That's the functioning aspect uh, of the Trinity. Uh, and so you see that uh, as, as God really speaks to our heart and talks about us. Um, and so the, his, his immersion in water was a sign of submission, as a sign of following the law. Um, and so John the Baptist's preaching created quite a stir in Israel. He was immensely popular. M- magnificent crowds followed him. Uh, and But he is demonstrating that he's not the man. He's not the man. And he said to Jesus, when Jesus came to be baptized, you're coming and asking me to baptize you. You should baptize me. Because he knew who he was. All right? He recognized who he was. By the way, he was his cousin. All right? So he, you know, he, he had known him, knew him his whole life. Uh, and so he recognized about w- what Jesus was. And so John spoke eloquently about the coming one. Now, here's the thing. The coming one, meaning the Lord Jesus himself, our Savior, was more powerful than John. Well, how do I say that? Well, John 3.16, that's why. All right, John 3.16, that demonstrated. The coming one was much more worthy than John. John was a human. God, Jesus was divine. Um, and so the coming one would actually gather the wheat and burn up the chaff in judgment. Uh, We don't talk about that much, but let's turn just to let you see that. That's John chapter 3, verse 17. We'll, We'll start with 16. And this is Jesus speaking now, so it's important to know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may seem plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Look, here's very clearly the role of Jesus Christ. To save the world, all who believe in him will be saved and have eternal life. And those who don't believe, and I want you to understand this, those who don't believe, it's not as if God is condemning them because they didn't believe, they're already condemned. I want you to understand this word. People who have not accepted Jesus Christ are dead men walking. All right, that's the nature of sin. That's the nature of the sin nature. You sit there uh, in the the very DNA that you were born with, and unless you accept Jesus Christ, you are already condemned to death. That's why we should have this spirit that we need to talk to people about Christ, that wherever we are, we need to speak out and bring the message of Jesus uh, to a world that, that's desperate about this, and we need it. Okay, I, I gave the, the uh, story last night, uh, and I'll, I'll repeat it again because it, it bears a repeating. I flew in Friday night late about midnight, uh, coming back from New York, and, and I was exhausted, I was exhausted, and, and I didn't feel like talking, but I always pray, Lord, put somebody next to me that you may want to hear about you. And this young woman, about 28 years old, very bright lady, a consultant for one of the big accounting firms, wanted to engage me in a conversation, even though I frankly didn't want to. I was tired. I wanted to sleep, but she wanted to talk to me. Uh, and so I talked to her and I could tell that she had, she was, uh, had issues in her life, that she was suffering and, and was not happy. She traveled on business 200 days a year. Imagine that, flying 200 days a year. Uh, Finally, I said to her, you need to put God in the center of your life. Just like that. You need to put God as the center of your life. You need to make God stabilize your life. Because without God as the centerpiece of your life, your life is going to be an obsession over what's the next work assignment. Where am I going? And instead, if God were the centerpiece of your life, your entire life would have peace and direction and purpose. she said, you know, I think God put you here next to me for a purpose. I do you like that? And I want to communicate with you. And I'm going to hope that someday I'll be able to come to your church. And so that's what God wants you to do. When you realize that the world is walking around as dead men walking, how can we not? How can we not? All right? And so I want to inspire you all to be able to do that, to think about that. uh, Because that's the call that God has put on all of us. So we need to understand that. Uh, and so these, these passages in Luke 3 and, and 4 uh, are, are very profound. You see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. Um, and now here's a point, and let me bring this to your attention. Does that mean that this was the first time that Jesus received the Holy Spirit? No, no. He was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. Remember this, he was always God. He was fully God and fully man. As he sat there in the manger as a baby, he was fully God. And he was fully man at the same time. How does that work? I'm not smart enough to give you an answer. Okay? Because I'm not God. He did it. But I want you to understand that. So as he sat there in God, he gave up his divine prerequisites. He gave up his divine power unless in some individual aspects... God gave it to him periodically so that miracles could com- be completed. But as he walked in this world, he was subject to temptation just like you are. Don't think he, had, he was immune. Please, he was not immune. He was open to temptation just as you are. Uh, but he was fully God at the same time. And so you see this incredible uh, passage here where the, where the Son of God uh, is revealed and God the Father says, this is my, my son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, and then you see that there's a genealogy there uh, uh, that Luke writes about. And genealogies were considered important. Uh, and what what this genealogy does, it traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. All right, all the way back to Adam and through through David and through Abraham. Uh, and so uh, we understand that, that we see exactly how that works. And so uh, We share Adam as a common ancestor, uh, the people of God. And so in this way, Luke showed that in Jesus, God offers salvation to all people, Gentiles as well as Jews. I want you to understand that. Luke was a Gentile. Luke is writing this gospel, and he is demonstrating that Jesus has come to save not just the Jews, but to Gentiles. And that was an amazing thing to, to uh, recognize uh, as, as we see this and, and, and get an, a, a picture of, of what Jesus is about. And that's why I love Luke. And you know this, that Luke was considered, again, one of the great historians in the history of the world, and he relied on eyewitness testimony. So much of what we see in Luke had to come from the mouth of Mary. She was alive. All right. She was alive. And so we we recognize that he's getting eyewitness testimony. Uh, And so that's how we know all this. Now, the next section that I want to focus you on is the temptation of Jesus found in in Luke chapter four. Uh, And there's much to be learned from this as Luke writes about it. So let's let's read this section of scripture. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember this. He'd just been baptized. And God had really, uh, really blessed him and lifted him up. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Now, he is about to be tempted. Why would the Spirit lead him into the desert? Because that was the will of God. You understand? Sometimes God leads us into places in which we will be tested. All right. We will be tested. It may not be the way you want it. And some of us have gone through this issue in our lives, where things have happened in our lives that would not be as you would draw it up. I don't have to fill in the dots for you, do I? You understand that. You, things have happened, and you didn't want it to happen that way. And yet God let it happen. Well, how can it be? Well, go back to Romans 8:28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You'd lead me into the desert, Lord? Yeah, I would. I would. As I want to teach you about me. I want to teach you about you. And there's a lot to learn. And so here we get this great picture of Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returning from Jordan and being led by the Spirit in the desert. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. So, I mean, really, if I go four hours without eating, you don't want to be in my presence. It's not a picture. Jesus Jesus goes 40 days, Jesus? 40 days? Yeah, 40 40 days without eating. So you can imagine uh, that in his physical strength, he probably had nothing left. Remember, fully man, fully God. Well, the fully man part, must have been just neutralized. Uh, And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. All right, now, what what an amazing, the amazing Satan, all right? Don't ever discount the power of Satan, all right? I mean, I see a lot of people that will will talk about Satan, uh, uh, you know, as if he's a little midget with a pitchfork. No, no, you're talking about the greatest created being in the history uh, of the world. The greatest created being. He was a created being. There was no created being that was greater than Satan. He had incredible talents and gifts. Effectively, he was the worship leader of heaven. He was a talented musician. He was incredibly beautiful and talented and well-spoken. So, this magnificent angel, remember, it was his. What happened was he was jealous of Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. He was jealous of Jesus because he knew that he would never be the Son of God, that he, would be, he was a created being. And it was as a result of that that he wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshiped. Why shouldn't I have that? Look at me. I have all these gifts and talents. I wanted to be lifted up. Well, that, that was exactly what cut him out and and what destroyed him. But one of the titles that scripture says about Satan is he is the accuser of the brethren. Remember that, the accuser of the brethren. You, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're going to get up. You're going to teach a Bible story. You're going to teach a Bible study. You, I know you. I remember you. I saw you in your 20s and 30s. You think I haven't forgotten that? And that's what God. See, that's what Satan does. All right. And, and, and so he, he speaks to your mind and you all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, yeah, I remember when I was in my 20s and 30s, I did things that I shouldn't have done. But here's the thing. You're forgiven. You understand? You understand what forgiven means? You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. He has no authority over you. He can't say that to you. And so here he is talking to the son of God and says, if you are the son of God, let tell this stone to become bread. Well, now let's stop. You don't think he knew he was the son of God? Of course he knew he was the son of God. Why do you think he's out there? Because he wanted to show I can bring the son of God down. I can bring the son of God down. I'll ruin God's plans. All right. I'll ruin it. You think you've got this thing set up? I'll ruin it. And I'll do it right here. By, by proving that the Son of Man is just as weak uh, as humanity. Tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. And there's a citation there in your Bibles, if you see that, uh, to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy uh, 8, verse 3. And we can turn to that just to see how Jesus spoke this way. And that's one of the things that you need to have available understand scriptures and here it says we'll start with verse one be careful to follow every command i am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the lord promised on oath to your forefathers you remember how the lord your god led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wow. How's that for for a a perfect citation? That's effectively what Jesus said back to him. God gave his people manna. They didn't work for it. They didn't deserve it. He gave it to them. Uh, And the point of it was that you have to understand that we don't live... On bread alone, we live basically on the word of God. Yes, God takes care of us. Yes, he gives us a job. Yes, he gives us opportunity. Yes, he feeds us. But the point of this whole story is that that you uh, you cannot bow yourself down because you think you need to do something because you need to have a bread. Don't do that. We don't sell ourselves out for a loaf of bread. You understand? We don't sell our moral values out. All right. We don't make make deals with Satan, all right? And so many of us often will say, well, the end justifies the means, right? The end justifies, well, if I have a good idea in my head, I think it's a good thing. So what if I've cut corners to get it? No, we don't cut corners. We don't cut corners. We're serving God, and God will take care of us in every possible way. And so it's important to see this, and Jesus is giving us this demonstration in his life. Uh, Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it is given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now this is important because Jesus does not say here, you're a liar. You don't have this. You don't have control over it. Effectively, Jesus, Jesus is admitting, yeah, you're right. This is your world. This is where you have authority. And so as, as Satan says, I can give all this to you, all right? Just bow down and worship me. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't refute the part in which he says, I have authority over it. He refutes the part that says, just bow down and worship me. And in verse 8, Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that's, you know, is one of the prime commandments. The first one, uh, thou shalt worship no other God but God. He shall be your God. We don't worship anybody else. Now, what does that mean for you? I know right now you're thinking, well, I would never, I would never worship anybody but God. I would never do that. Why is John speaking to me about this? Because here's the thing, guys. That may be true, but so many of us worship little gods. Right? Little g's. Money, power, authority, affluence, family. I keep going. You understand? The little g's of your life. Those are the little g's that you put first over God. Yes, God, I worship you, God. But have I submitted my life to, well, you know, God, I got a lot of things. I've got a lot of work. I got a lot of family. I got a lot of friends. One of the things that astounds me, uh, and, and I have to say it is I, I see it often, when, when we have family coming into to, uh, Naples, the, one of the first things we blow off is church. i got to entertain them. i got to entertain them. Well, let me tell you something. Let me give you a clue. Here's how you entertain them. Pack them in a car, bring them to church, and then go out for pancakes. How's that? All right? Pack them in a car, come to church and then go out for pancakes, all right? What a lesson you are giving to your children, all right? You are saying to your children, I love you. I love you, but I love God first. I love God first. I'm committed to serving God. I'm committed to walking with God. And so, so many of us have these little Gs, these little Gs, all right, that that have interfered with our life uh, and, and have become idols in our life. And that's what that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, worship the Lord your God and Him only. Him only. Don't get yourself in a position where, you, where your spiritual life is divided. Uh, and this becomes an important thing because so many of us, oh, and there's often such good things. You know what I mean? They're good things. Finally, you get into the country club. You've been wanting to get into the country club for years. Finally, you got enough dough, and you're able to get in it, and it's oh, I'm good. I'm in a great country club. I love it. now. I I can play golf. Seven days a week. What happened to church? Well, uh, I'll get there. God knows my heart. That's my favorite one. God knows my heart. No, he knows your heart, but he wants to see your feet walk into church. <laughs> All right? He wants to see your feet walk into church and see you bow in submission to God. All right? Don't worry about him knowing your heart. Unfortunately, he does know your heart. And let me clue you. It's not such a happy place. All right? It's not such a happy place. Uh, and so we got to bow to God and understand this. The little G's, get the little G's out of our life and bow and submission to God in such an important way. Uh, and, and, and we need to focus in on this. And then as, as we continue to drill down on this, uh, uh, it, 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 he speaks further. He says, then, verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem. And just imagine how this is going on. I mean, I almost wonder if this were, was being done physically or in his mind because they're out in the desert and then suddenly from the desert it comes to jerusalem uh and whether the devil just picked jesus up and brought him physically there uh most likely that's the case but just think about that I and mean, you wonder about the power of satan uh and and then he, uh he brings him to jerusalem the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant uh, uh excuse me I, I i picked the wrong verse Uh, Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, what I know here is is that you see that, this, that Satan has some knowledge of the Bible. All right? I mean, I want you to understand that. He cited a Bible verse. How about that? Whoa. He cited a Bible verse. And what was that? Psalm 91. Let's turn. Let's see if what he said was accurate. All right? How about that? The Bi- Satan has gone to some Bible studies. All right? Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Let's take a look at that. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. He left one important word out. He will guard you in all your ways. Meaning what? As you walk in the way of God and submit in the way of God, he would protect you there. All right. It is not testing God to throw yourself off the Empire State Building because you read that verse and you think he's going to protect you. No, he's not going to protect you because that's not in in all his ways. It is absolutely not in his ways. And look at how how Jesus responds against that in verse 12. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, And so... What does that mean? It means that we don't do things uh, because we're testing God. You don't test God. You walk in submission to God. You walk in love. And, and if things come your way and come against you, God will lift you up. And so here he is showing us, showing us how to face temptation. How to face temptation. And it's important because if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 15, here's the point. This is why he went through this exercise. He went through this exercise because he's writing for time immemorial, this is how my people need to face temptation. Quote, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. That is your Jesus. Okay? I want you to think about it. That is your Jesus. Here he is, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, all right, no food. And and as the Satan is trying to drill and destroy him, he has been tested in every way. And so you see it. Um, These are important lessons, important lessons to be learned from the first 40 days that Jesus experienced. First, we may be tempted to do something that might be considered morally neutral, but to do it with selfish motives. Okay, you know, uh, it might be morally neutral, but I want to raise myself. I want to elevate myself. No, no, making, making stones into bread. No, you don't do that, Jesus, uh, because, it, again, you're satisfying yourself. We're not here to satisfy ourselves. We're here to satisfy God, all right? And that's the lesson here. Uh, devoting time to that kind of action may hinder us from doing something more important. This is not about self-satisfaction. This walk with Christ is about being the hands and feet of Jesus. I can't emphasize that enough. He's called you to be his hands and feet. Meaning when you walk out this door, when you walk into the parking lot, as you drive your car through through, uh, Naples, God is calling you to be his missionary. That's the call on your life. That's the call on your life. And I want to emphasize that to you. Uh, that that's a part of, of every day of your life as you walk with Christ in every way. And so you want to devote time to elevate that. You don't want to devote time to lifting yourself up. It's not about making yourself more comfortable. Not about making yourself more comfortable. Look, when God laid on my heart that, that at the age of 70, all right, when most people would be looking at getting on a boat and cruising around the world, that for me instead He's grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and said, you have to start a church. Do you think I would have ever thought that as part of my resume? You understand? Is that something I would have laid out? Of course not. But when you bow in submission to God, when you open your heart to the will of God, you will be amazed at what he will do with you. I want to promise you that. He will do amazing things when you bow to him and say, God, I will follow your will. I will do what you want me to do. I will walk where you want me to walk. I mean, that's the point of this. Uh, And so, look, I don't know what the ultimate aim is in your life. Only God knows. All right? I can't tell you what you should be doing. But God is calling each and every one of you to some ministerial act. Some of you are being called to go into prisons. Some of you are being called to visit hospitals. Some of you are called to be ministry helpers. I don't know what it is, but each and every one of you has a call on your life. Can I get an amen for you? I mean, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand this. Look, we don't study these stories because they titillate us intellectually. Uh, But we study these stories because God is speaking to your heart. And this is how the Holy Spirit works. If I'm speaking to you right now, and it's the Holy Spirit that is speaking to me, then your heart should be going, yes. Yes. Amen. He's right. I'm convicted. And if I'm not speaking with the Holy Spirit, then probably you're taking a nap. It's that simple. And I hope you have a good rest. All right. I mean, I hope you would do that. Here's the point. Here is the point of what this is. Jesus, Jesus is ultimately going to rule over this entire world. You understand the very people that put him on the cross and repudiated him. We'll bow. And at his knees, we'll bow. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter two, one of my favorite passages, as we understand who this Jesus is. And, and, we, and we have a great greater understanding of what God is doing to him. Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude, verse 5. This, this is this really to me summarizes everything that I've been saying. <clears throat> Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father in the congregation said. And here's the point. That is your Jesus. That is the baby born in the manger. That is the place where there was no room for him to, to lie down but he had to have a place where animals were. This is a man that was raised in a poor family who never traveled far from his home, all right? A man who was repudiated always, constantly, who the religious elites could not stand and wanted to kill him, that is your Jesus. And finally, in the greatest act of obedience and servanthood, he allows himself to be put on a cross when he himself could have taken himself off the cross and called 10,000 angels to wipe out Jerusalem And yet he allowed himself as the ultimate servant to be placed on the cross. That is your Jesus. That is your Jesus. And three days later, under the power of God, resurrected from the dead, resurrected from the dead, defeating death, that is your Jesus. And I want you to understand this as you leave now. Your Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And he's praying for you right now. He's praying for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He holds you in his hand. And so this Thanksgiving, when you sit around the table, the first thing you should say, the first thing you should say as you thank God is, Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you have given us Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their love of you. I thank you for the words that you have given us. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. Our lives would be meaningless, Father, but we bow because you have given us Jesus. And so, even though each of us here have some issues in our lives, even though each of us have some suffering in our lives, even though some of us have some some temptation in our lives, and as our flesh deteriorates, Lord, we know you hold us. You will not abandon us. You went to the cross for us. You loved us that much. And so, Father, I ask you that this message resonate in our hearts this week especially and that we understand what this great gift that you gave us was, how great this salvation, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let that resonate in my heart. Bless our men, protect them, and bring them back safely to continue our study next Monday. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.